I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode 26, Mark LaCour, you're in front of me right now. What is going on? I don't know. Folks, you may not know this, but James and I, I don't think, have ever actually done this in person. We usually do it remotely from wherever we are in the world. And this is the first time we're actually in the same room at the same time recording our show. Yeah, we've never we've never done this before, so so it's going to be a, a colossal colossal uh, total total crash and burn uh, from this <laughs> side of the <laughs> from this side of the microphone. But luckily, Mark Lacour is here to, is here to save the day. And where are we, Mark? We're actually in a George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston, Texas, for NAPE, which stands for North American Prospect Expo. This is one of our favorite shows. Uh, it's one of the top shows for selling or, or uh, trading or brokering prospects, which in oil and gas is actually mineral bearing rights. And it's just a good vibe. So you've heard us talk about the show before. Uh, both James and I love this place, and, and we're happy to be here. Yeah, and so what we're going to do on this episode, um, you know, we usually have a, a commercial break. We have a weekly onion. We, we do all kinds of fun stuff. But we wanted to, to, to really make this uh, the all nape everything show. Yeah, and real and genuine. And real and genuine. And so uh, Mark went out on the show floor and, and some people asked you some questions. Well, what happened is I went out and asked people, what are they thinking about right now in, you know, in 2015 with these low crude prices? And so their questions are what we're going to read on the show today and what we're going to talk about. Yeah, so instead of going through the news articles like we do, and he, he, he's got eight great questions here, um, and we usually have eight news articles. And so we're going to just do a deep dive on all of these and and see see if we can get some answers to these to these pressing questions. So up first, tell me about Ryan Clatt. So uh, Ryan Clant is an attendee, um, and while I was walking up the booth, he recognized me um, and he uh, talked to me a little bit. And I just asked him, I said, "Look, as an attendee, what are you thinking about?" So um, you want me to read the question? Sure. Or, yeah, yeah, you were there. Yeah. So his question is uh, this. Is anybody looking at building the infrastructure needed when the price of crude goes back up and drilling accelerates? I know in Midland, Texas, where he's from, um, the lack of infrastructure is a major problem. So when, you, when, you, when he said that to you, what's the first thing that you think of? Um, honestly, the first thing I thought of when he said that is, I haven't really thought about that before. Um, and I have some of the answers. So, you know, we've talked about this on previous shows, how there's a lot of companies here in, in North America, especially in, in the shale place. Shale place. Shale. I've been We're working on it. Um, that have started building infrastructure for a number of reasons. So instead of hauling uh, wastewater or freshwater or crude by truck, a lot of companies are building the pipelines and so they can move it around. It's better for the environment. It's cheaper for the operator. allows them to control their cost. So some of this is actually starting to happen um, and has been happening. And these low crude prices are actually accelerating this because people, it's one of the ways they can control cost. Um, so, you know, my answer, um, my answer to Ryan is, yes, companies have already thought about this, and they're starting to do it. Now, whether they'll get everything built out in Midland, and I know a little bit about Midland, it's not just pipeline. Uh, it's roads that need to be built in. It's um, actually, there's a lot of uh, deep injection wells have been shut down, so they have to build in the recycling facilities, which you and I have a um, nonprofit that we both work with that has an answer to those shutdown deep injection wells. So the technology's there, the willingness there, um, has it happened yet? No, but it's in progress. So people are working on it. Educate me a little bit on this, though, because whenever I hear the word infrastructure, all I think of is pipeline. Yeah, so infrastructure is everything. Um, and a lot of stuff that people would not think of in oil and gas, such as schools. 
right? If you bring in a, a, a large um, population of workers who are now take resident in a par part of the country that had, you know, maybe 150, 200 students, and they bring their children, now that area of the country goes up to five or 600 students, how are you going to send them to school, right? Sewage, water treatment plants, um, housing. You know, in the Dakotas, there's a huge shortage of housing. Grocery stores, right? Who has the logistics to make sure groceries? So all that has to be figured in when you think about infrastructure. But you're right, James. When we say infrastructure and oil and gas, most people think pipeline, but it's much more than that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So up next, we have Alan Day. Okay, so thank you, Ryan Klatt, attendee, with in, what is it, Imperil Land? Yeah. Is that right? That's right. All right. <laughs> so, so next we got uh, Alan Day at Total Land. Uh, Mr. Bill Justice, who we were just out to dinner with, um, uh, what is it, last night, two nights ago? Two nights ago. Yeah, two nights ago, um, he, he, uh, he started that company, and he happens to be right across the room here, which is kind of uh, serendipitous. Yeah. yeah, so is the industry taking advantage of this slow period to get prepared for when the price of crude goes back up and we have an increase in activity? Yeah, so my answer to that, quite honestly, is no. Um, it's a very good idea. Um, you know, you and I have even talked about with our business, you know, what are we doing now to get us ourselves prepared for when everything starts accelerating? But when I look at what everybody's going on right now, in the upstream and the service companies that service upstream, it's really now all about either survival or holding our own. Um, nobody's really, that I've seen, has used this time to start getting prepped for when things ramp back up. Now, with all that said, the industry as a whole is not really going through a slow period, just part of the industry. The upstream side of the house and the service companies. Downstream is having the opposite of a slow time. They're on fire right now. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a great idea. I don't see much evidence of it actually happening. What, if, if, if a company was doing something, what are some examples of things that a company might do so you think about what uh, talent shortage you could have when things pick back up. So things like a dr uh, drilling um, supervisors. There's a shortage of that now, even with this low crude price. What's going to happen when drill rigs start going back up? <laughs> There's no drilling supervisor. So if I was a, a mid-sized operator, I would be hiring and training people, drilling operators. And you have to do it where it fits into your budget and makes sense. So that would give me a competitive differenti differentiator. When, when drilling activity picks back up, I now have a drilling um, supervisor that nobody else has. Then, of course, you got to worry about retention because these guys will be worth a fortune. But still, <laughs> yeah, it's things like that or things like um, replacing your, your older, lower horsepower rigs with higher, newer, higher horsepower rigs, which get a premium rate over the lower rigs. So when the drilling activity picks back up, people will rent your rigs and not your competitors. Got it. Okay. All right. So thank you, Alan Day. Shout out to Total Land. Y'all are awesome. And uh, am I? All right. So it's Mark Dennis Petrolog. So what's Mark's story? Uh, Mark. Uh, <laughs> uh, Petrolog was one of the people that were here. I stopped by their booth. I um, asked them a question, and this was um, uh, Mark's answer, who was actually the head of sales for Petrolog. Mark's answer? I mean, it's Mark's question. <laughs> All right. Am I uh, the only person that while suffering through these low crude prices, all I can think about uh, is, <laughs> what is that? that? Read it right. That's right. A big bowl of rice and gravy. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Mark is Cajun, as I am. He's going to have Mark. <laughs> And I left this in here because this is such a typical Cajun response, right? Things are bad uh, in that upstream part where people are suffering. What, is, what do the Cajuns worry about? A big bowl of rice and gravy. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's comfort food in Cajun land, right? So um, I, I left it in there because it was funny. Um, and, and, you know, the Cajun sense of humor kind of uh, parallels a lot of the, uh, the oil field guys in that even when times are down, you know what, we're still going to have some fun. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so, did, so this is a joke, obviously, or at least it was a funny remark that he made. It was a funny remark. I think he was serious. Like, I think he was thinking about a big roll of rice and gravy. <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> so shout out to you, Mark. Yep. I don't know if there was any more to that conversation, so we'll leave it at that. Not everybody is hurting uh, from these low oil prices, but do you think more companies are looking at outsourcing right now? And that's from Lisa Hands. Right. So Lisa Hands' company is basically she does outsources uh, outsource accounting for oil and gas companies. And so her business is actually booming right now because as a lot of these uh, companies are hurting, they're getting rid of their accounting staff or they're not hiring replacement and they're outsourcing because you get the same work for less money. So her business is actually on fire. But her question is very pertinent. And her question is, are these companies looking at outsourcing more because of what's happening with these low crude environment? And absolutely, yes. Um, in fact, a lot of companies are outsourcing when they've never outsourced before. And it ranges a gauntlet, IT, HR, um, legal marketing, uh, marketing, right, and it's and it's just another way for them to to lower their costs while the cost of crude is low. So yes, it's Leslie's it's a great question, and we're seeing it happen left and right. And I have to I have to jump on that bandwagon because I am a beneficiary of said thing. But uh, there there's something to be argued about uh, hiring a contractor over an employee in terms of productivity. Sometimes, well, there's a lot. Of, yeah, and so the truth is we're moving as a, as a society more toward outsourcing, right? Because you can get better experts for, for, for less money. And the experts themselves actually end up making more money and get to apply their expertise and move the needle more. It's, and the technology is there to allow, to allow anybody to work from anywhere in the world. So, yeah, absolutely right. All right, so next we've got Michael Cox, Cox Consulting. Are these low crude prices pushing companies to think differently about driving efficiencies in their business? I think I know the answer to this one, Mark. And what is it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, they're they're being forced to, and it's it's across the board. Everything from the super majors to the independent operators out there, everybody's looking to increase operational efficiency, and they're actually doing it in some very dramatic ways. Uh, you and I sat in a breakfast where the CEO of Noble Energy was talking about the efficiencies they're driving, and it's 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 almost unbelievable, other than the fact that we know the CEO said it because we were there right in front of him. Yeah. Um, but it, it's and it it needed to happen. You know, we talked a bit about. Um, um, I'll be speaking at breakfast pretty soon on operational um, excellence, which operational efficiency is part of that. And it's time. It's time for the industry to embrace that um, philosophy on doing business. And it's happening. Now, will it happen tomorrow? No. Um, will it happen in the next 10 years? Absolutely. Um, and, but I'm seeing it across the board, and you're seeing it in ways that you may not have thought of. Um, so things like office supplies. A lot of companies are looking like, you know what? Let's try to go as paper-free as possible, not because they're trying to help the environment, because it saves them on costs on office supplies. So, you know, if you're a company that doesn't necessarily think about oil and gas as potential clients for you, think about what you do. And even something as simple as office supplies, if you can affect some type of efficiencies in operations, you need to be trying to sell to the oil and gas industry, because right now they need it, and they want it, and they're willing to buy it. Yeah, it, but that, that brings to mind a, a mutual contact of ours who, who does, um, you know, sort of robust analytics on, on forecasting of, you know, inventories and things like that. And I went out to, to lunch with, uh, with her and, and another um, friend of mine who, uh, who works in the Eagleford. He, yeah, well, we, we know uh, he was quoted in one of the stores we, on, a pre on, a, on the Eagleford, if you remember, you're looking funny, the Eagleford, remember when they had the, the sand, uh, record sand delivery? Right. He was quoted in that. Yeah, but I don't remember who he is, James. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I'm keeping the names up. That's okay. We'll, we'll talk off, <laughs> off mic. Yeah, um, but regardless, the thing that I'm getting to here is is the fact that there are there are. It's a slow process, right? Because the thing that that was interesting to me to hear him talk about um, a lot of nobody does like post mortem on a well to be able to figure out like if they 
even right right and that that goes back to the industry's resistance to change and the I've talked about this last night at the icebreaker with a couple of people some people in the industry and their eyes were wide open it's like now they finally got it a lot of people think this industry is old-fashioned and it's not I'll put the technology and oil field against any other vertical out there. What people don't understand is that this industry is risk adverse. So in this industry, unlike big box retail or medical or legal, when you make a mistake in this industry, people die. And not only do people die, but you have this huge environmental catastrophe which destroys shareholder value. So in this industry, once you build a process, and whether that process is um, how you complete a well, how you hire, right, um, how you ship office supplies, um, how you do accounts receivable. Once that process is in place and nothing leaks, nothing blows up and nobody dies, you don't want to change the process because the consequences are, are deadly both to people and to companies. So that is different than being old-fashioned, being risk-adverse. And there's ways to get around that, but that risk-adversion is going to slow down the adoption of new process and new technologies, which would impact efficiencies. But it will happen. It's just going to happen slower in the oil industry than it would anywhere else. All right. Thank you, Michael, for that question. Tom Glover, Optimized Operations Consulting. Are companies thinking about swallowing up other companies right now? Yeah, he just put it out there. <laughs> he just swallowed them up. Yeah, it's um. So so yes, and you know, and we predicted last it's M and A season. Yeah, we predicted last year this would be a record year. Actually, this time the third um, third quarter of the year for mergers and acquisitions in oil and gas, and I'm wrong. Um, it hasn't happened yet. Now, I have a lot of contacts on both sides of the equation. I have contacts on the financial side, the people that provide the capital for these big acquisitions, and I have contacts in the actual M&A divisions of the super majors, the big service companies. And everybody's just waiting. It's still going to happen, and it's still going to be big, um, but there's a lot of people that are waiting that think that we have not hit rock bottom. Now, of course, you know that I think we've hit rock bottom. Yeah. yeah. So I don't have a crystal ball, um, but it will happen. It just hasn't happened as soon as I thought it was going to happen. It. Yeah, it's a previous episode where I sort of made the correlation, but I'll, I'll bring it up again on the whole, the housing bubble burst thing, right? And, and you sort of, it's, it's at a corporate level in a different vertical and so forth, but um, nobody wants to buy before they're 100% certain that we that we're there. Yeah, until the you hit rock bottom. I mean, you think about what you're doing. You're trying to acquire assets at their least value. That way you maximize your investment. So you're not going to acquire that company or that asset or whatever until you're convinced that it has hit rock bottom. And so the M&A activity has not taken off because most of the people that provide the capital for the M&A activity does not believe we've hit rock bottom. I disagree with them, but they, they is, should. So is that the thing? Is it the capital? Yeah, it's it's and, and we could spend three hours talking about this, but things have changed so much with money in this industry. So back in the 80s when we had that crash, the only place you could get capital really was from a bank. Now the bank is, is not even a big percentage of capital. Now you have a, a consumer debt markets, which provide, I mean, a commercial debt markets, which provide capital. You have um, uh, venture capital companies. You have um, large private equity companies. You have the banks. You have interna international investments. All of those people will provide capital. In fact, there's a lot of international investment money out there trying or waiting to start trying to buy a lot of these assets in the North America shale plays. Um, and, and we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. So that's that's the, one of the differences between this downturn in the 80s, one of many. Um, but that's also what's um, keeping the M&A activity from taking off is that those people that have access, that control that capital don't think we've hit rock bottom yet. So what do you, what, what are, because you, you, we've talked about it several times where it's, you know, I don't have a crystal ball and, and so forth, but what are the, the, the pressures that are going to push it back up in the spring? 
So we stick to the fundamentals, right? Um, you know, you and I talk a little bit about the fears of this um, Iraq crude being dumped on the market. When you look at the amount of crude, the, the Iran crude, Iran. I'm sorry. Yeah. If you look at the amount of the Iran crude that would be dumped on the market, and you look at the amount of crude the world consumes in a year, it's a blip on the radar. So we don't even count that. So we look at the fundamentals. What does the increase in demand globally look like? What is our the global product, production forecast look like? So the global production is we had a surplus, but it wasn't a very big surplus. Depending on who you believe, it's between one and three percent. Back in the '80s, we had about a nine percent surplus. Big difference, right? And it looks like um, our global consumption is going to go up about one and a half million barrels a day. Um, and if that happens, if you if you literally graph out those two, then you can see the price of oil hit about seventy or seventy-five dollars in April twenty sixteen. Now, there's a gazillion other variables that go in there, and there's a lot of people much smarter than me that look at this that make a living by figuring that stuff out. We don't make a living at doing this, so we look at the basic fundamental supply and demand, and we look at what's um, what's going on in the world geopolitically. Is there anything out there that would be, be a black swan? Is there something totally unexpected that would impact this? Um, and, and, and we don't see anything for the next 12 months that would be a black swan event. And we look at the what the supply and the demand, and that's what we think. So we'll see. We'll see what, we're, what yeah, happens. We'll see. All right. So thanks for that, Tom Glover. All right, Joe Juarez. If we lift the export ban, please, dear Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> is anyone thinking ahead about building the facilities needed to export crude? Yeah. BHL. Yeah, great question, my Joe. Um, I, I have never, I've never thought of this one either. Um, and it needs to be thought of. So this is what I know. There's a lot of terminals, and a terminal is a place where you can offload something into a super tanker and move it across the world and go sell it. There's a lot of terminals, especially in the Gulf Coast, that are sitting dormant. That years ago, um, those terminals were used to um, take crude off of super tankers, put them in pipelines, and ship it to all the refineries ar around the U.S. Well, all those refineries are gone now, and we don't import as much crude as we want, so those terminals are just sitting idle. It would not be much of investment. In fact, there's a Chevron has a um, refinery in Pascagoula, Mississippi, has its own terminal right there in the Gulf of Mexico that they don't use anymore. Um, it would not be that hard. And there's a whole bunch of terminals up down the Mississippi River, which is a deep water port. And here in Houston, the port of Houston, there's a bunch of terminals that are sitting there that are designed to import crude. It would not take much money or time to, f to reverse that so they could export crude. So I'm not sure, I have heard of nobody talking about um, thinking ahead of the export ban. But I do know that a lot of those facilities are mothballed, and it would not be much work to get them geared up. Now, what's going to happen, though, I can guarantee you this. If we lift that export ban, you have some very smart people figure out where's the best way to make money. So where's the best place we can sell our sweet crew to get the most money? What's the cheapest way to get it there? What ports in the U.S. are closest to keep that transportation closed? And you can see a whole bunch of construction going on. That stuff. <laughs> you, that's going to be crazy rush to get that stuff online. My, my gut would tell me it's still going to be the Gulf of Mexico, and it's going to be deep water ports. So I think either Louisiana or Texas would benefit probably the most from that. When you say deep water ports, how do you mean? Uh, I can't remember. The, somebody out there should probably shoot an email and remind me what's the definition of deep water. But basically, you have tankers that draw about 15 feet of water that operate in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, but they can't, they're not the super tankers. The super tankers need like 30 or 40 feet, maybe even 60 feet. So you have to have at least that much depth to be able to get the super tanker up to load it. So that reminded me, and I'm trying to get to it here because I sent you this text the other day uh, because we just brought up a definition. And I sent you the text of the definition of EBITDA. Do you remember? Oh, well, it's earnings before... Interest. Interest, something, something. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, it's great. All right, yeah, so... Um, I'll, Interest I'll, depreciation. Depreciation, yep. 
and something else. Oh, man. Come on. Give it to me. And uh, EBITDA is an important term. I know it's an important term. I just can't remember what the acronym stands for. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, if you're wondering, I'm putting Mark on the spot because I, I, I actually have a financial dictionary that I've had since my days back at Quicken Loans <laughs> selling mortgages. No, 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 folks. Now, here's the thing, James. You need to straighten up. James reads the financial dictionary. I do. Now, what type of person reads financial dictionaries? <laughs> <laughs> very special. Very special people. Very special person. I got it for you. There it is. EBITDA. Uh, it means earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So um, they talk about that a lot on Seeking Alpha. Well, EBITDA is, is a term used by any public company. It's one of the measurements of how well they're doing. Is it? Is it just a fancy way of saying cash flow? No. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a quick way to do a forecast model. Basically, um, how much money, how much profit did you make? And then if you take your cost out of it, what's left? But there's, there's a variety of costs in it. The interest, you know, what's your internal cost of capital? That's, that's all stuff that, that large companies and public companies need to worry to, so they can give their um, information back to Wall Street in a way that Wall Street can accurately report on what they're doing. Got it. All right. So we're, we're bringing it home with my boy, Mr. Nathan Randazzo, now at Tableau. Are companies more willing to invest in new technologies that will help them compete in these low oil prices? Absolutely, Nathan. <laughs> in fact, in ways that you may not think of. So, uh, Nathan, Tableau is a software company, um, and they have some technology that would help people make sure they don't make mistakes uh, in this low crude market, or in any market, right? It's very easy to use. Um, I actually got to play with it a little bit. It's, it's re- it, you know, your oil-filled rig hand could use this software. <laughs> I mean, it's that easy to use. But it also is technologies in other ways, such as robots. So National Oil Well has been working for three years, and now they have, they're, they're accelerating this program to get it out. And it's basically robotic uh, rig handling, right? So you're handling pipe and um, um, completions and drilling tools and everything by basically big transformers <laughs> that grab this stuff, move it around. And, but that's all in, uh, driving efficiencies in the oil field. Same way with um, self, self-moving rigs. You now have rigs that go, okay, I'll pick myself up and move me to another pad, right? Um, wait, wait, what? Yeah. You now have rigs out there that, that will, once they're finished drilling, it used to be you had to take them apart, haul them somewhere, put them back together. The rig picks itself up, and it drives or walks itself to the next pad. And that's, <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. You're blowing my. Are they going to become self-aware soon? Um, you know, it, it would not be. It would not surprise. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. It would not surprise me with the Internet of Things that somewhere in the future you tell this rig, here's the next three places you need to drill in the next 18 months, and it takes care of itself, including logistics, including make sure fuels delivered, supplies delivered. You know, it's the technology's there, and we're we're going there, but. It's when you know this is a good question by Nathan. Absolutely, companies are looking at technologies to increase efficiencies, but those technologies may be different than what most people would think of. So you just brought up a. We've never said this term on the show. The Internet of Things. Yeah, because the oil and gas industry calls it digital oil field. Digital. The, yeah, whole, the right. whole world yeah. calls it IoT. IoT. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so because it's a really interesting thing to me because uh, you know I get in all kinds of arguments on Facebook about minimum wage and fifteen dollar burger flippers and so forth, and and and. Those people, their enemies are their anybody who who works at a fast food chain. In my and I know this is more political than you want to go, but in my opinion, anyone who works at at a fast food joint making seven twenty five an hour, their enemy isn't the the CEO who makes the what the market pays him for his value. Right. Their enemy is the person demanding fifteen dollars an hour because they're just making it faster that they're going to be replaced by robots, right? Yeah. Um, by people checking out. So. But this is something I've never made the connected the dots on as far as the oil field is concerned. Because, you know, within 10, 15 years, trucks 
they'll be driving themselves. Right. I mean, probably five, maybe, right? Is that, I mean, the guys got to be thinking about that out there, right? So are you asking me, is this going to um, hurt labor in the oil and gas industry? Yeah. In a very small, localized um, way, it will. So, yes, there'll be one less rig hand or two less rig hands. The reality, though, is this industry has suffered from labor shortage already. So what's going to happen is this person that would have normally become a rig hand will now become um, a, 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 a remote operator of several rigs, right? So it's, it's, he'll, he'll have some of the same skills, apply them to with different technology and a different scope. Um, so it's, it's, it's actually, I think, beneficial for the industry. One thing is the more efficiencies we drive, the more money it makes for everybody, the more stable the industry is. Um, the less we have constraints, and those constraints include talent, the better off it is for everybody. And then safety. I mean, you know, safety is the biggest driver in this industry. And, and you and I both, along with all of our oil and gas peers out there, we want people to go home at night. So I would rather have some robot handling pipe and let the pipe slip and cut the robot's fingers off than to have it actually happen to a human. Yeah. So it's great stuff. Yeah, and, and you know, it, just, it all goes back to, you know, the, the horse carriers, uh, you know, protesting the cars. And so, I mean, our society advances, people acquire new skills, and eventually, I mean, it, in the large scope, make more money. Yeah, well, remember when the first automatic um, clo- cloth weaving looms came out, the seamstresses at that time revolted and tore up the looms and burned them, right? Because they felt their jobs were threatened. What they didn't realize is that if you automate making cloth, you needed more seamstresses because there's more work to be done. You could automate making clothing. Um, so their short-sightedness didn't really help them, and it actually long-term wide, it helped the industry as a whole. Leverage, baby. Yep. Leverage. All right. So thanks for that, Nathan. Um, that really wraps up the eight other questions. What else? What else did you see out there um, on the show floor as you were as you were walking around? So this is my second day here. I was here yesterday, uh, here early in the morning in the press booth, and I actually interviewed a couple of people. Um, spent a lot of time talking. I was at the icebreaker, did the um, the lunch, and the thing that I am most proud of and most impressed is the feeling of optimism in the crowd. It is just unbelievable. And, and we're in a low crude price market. You would think people would be screaming gloom and doom, and everybody dragging their feet with their eyes down. And no, this, this industry as a whole is very resistant um, to that sort of stuff. And quite honestly, they push back. You know, it's like a bunch of cowboys. Like, I don't, you're not getting us down. I don't care what you're doing. We're going to lick this thing. We're going to pull together, and we're going to get out of it. And I just love the feeling of optimism that's on the floor right now. The other thing I was very surprised at, it's going to be interesting to see the um, actual numbers when they come out. So I thought that this NAEP, you know, typically NAEP has close to 5,000. This, this, this one. Yeah, yeah, it's the summer one. We'll have between 4,800, 5,000 people show up here all together. Um, I was hoping that they would get at least 2,000 because this is, a, this is the, the bottom of the low crude price market. I can't wait to see what the numbers come out, but I think they got way more than 2,000. I'm going to put, I'm going to guess. I bet they got about 4,100 people here. Um, <laughs> yeah, gonna... <laughs> I'm going to guess on, before the numbers come out, um, just based on, on what I've seen. And I think that Do you is... win that jelly jar thing every time? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, and the funny thing is, um, you know, we also have our own show, our own blog show. And, um, you know, we do our yearly forecast in November for the following year. But um, when you look at those numbers, we're about 71% accurate. So that means that I'm right three out of every five times I open my mouth. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So uh, we'll see what the numbers say. But I'm very surprised at the turnout. The turnout is fantastic. Much, much, much higher than I thought. Um now, I, I, I do wish that uh, we'd have some better food options here, but, you know, we'll worry about that next year. <laughs> <laughs> There's always steak that you can take me to, Mark. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I think that covers the whole of it. Uh, we have a special 
surprise coming out that we will not talk about and leave you in suspense on. And listen, listen, you know, p- people out there, if, if this is the first time you listen to the show, you know, if you if the first time you listen because we're doing this live thing at NAPE, um, we have a LinkedIn group. The LinkedIn group goes hand in hand with this. Please join. We'd love to have you join. We have some great conversations. We have our members helping each other out. Um, you got James out there giving free marketing advice. I mean, and I don't, I don't mean advice. I mean, literally like rewriting stuff for people to show them <laughs> how to do it the right way. Right. Um, we got some um, uh, group only content out there. Um, so please, please, please. It's triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. We'll take you straight there. And then also, if you want to know how to make the most of the trade show leads that you get out of this right here, tell them about the video. Yeah, so James and I uh, collaborate. We put together a video on literally what do you need to do to convert trade show leads into prospects. So instead of your booth staff out there handing out koozies and you got a stack of business card, what do you do to get those people to buy from you or figure out if they're not going to buy from you? What are the processes, the tricks, the steps you take? And that's worth a fortune. And we could have sold that. And what are we doing with that? What are, what are we charging people for that? It's free. Can, say it again? It's free. Free. So, <laughs> so if, if people wanted to have uh, access to that video, what do they need to do? They need to text trade show altogether, one word, trade show, to 33444. And we will deliver it straight to their email inbox. Whenever you get it finished. Whenever I get it finished. <laughs> Which is very, very soon. No, I promise you, you'll get it soon. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's actually finished. James just needs to edit it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right, man. Anything else? Nope. Folks, do great work. Pay it for it. And we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. intelligent on this show.